I went to Spain last year, like first uh, to get there, I took the train, but to get back, I had to take an airplane. And it was also like, I remember me sitting in Spain and was like, I don't want to take this flight, but I have to. And there was like, the feeling that I had, I didn't really like it, yeah. This is a behind the scenes from our last conversation with Dr. Nick Hartley, where we spoke to him about climate anxiety. While we're all on our own climate journeys, there are points where we don't live up to our own expectations and ideologies. After all, we're all only human. Hello and welcome to Two Minutes to Midnight, a global podcast for a global problem. My name is Ayushisha. And I'm Julia Brunner. In today's episode, Julia and I are going to talk about our own climate journeys. Today's episode is a little bit special for two reasons. For the first time, we are not sitting in the same room while we are recording this podcast. And um, this is kind of related to the second one, because this episode is also a little bit more personal than usual. We are talking about our personal struggles that we had and continue to have on our climate journey. For example, I'm sitting in Germany right now while Ayushi is still in England uh, because I had to take a plane back home because of Corona and our university encouraged us to go home if we could. And while I could go home, Ayushi is still stuck in England. But like I said, I had to take a plane back home, which normally I wouldn't have chosen. I would have taken a train, but the borders were shut. So my only option was to take a plane. Right. And it is more or less the same with me as well, right? Because when there is this sense of panic, you know, I'm still stuck here. I am regularly on calls with my family. But maybe as soon as I can go home, I will be taking a really long, polluting flight. At the same time, right now, because of all the panic around food shortage, I have, if not stocked, then at least sort of like bought more canned food and more items that are coated in plastic, something I wouldn't have done otherwise, really. When you change your ideology, you start trying to live a more conscious, planet-friendly lifestyle by paying attention to every single action of yours. But like I said, we all fail and struggle with it sometimes. It could be catching a last-minute cap to work or grabbing a quick meal to go between work. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, normally for me, taking a plane wouldn't really have been an option because I have the opportunity to normally take train. But due to what's happening in the world right now, I kind of didn't have another option. And um, sometimes it really is tough when you want to do something, but you're just not able to do it the way you wanted to do, I would say. That's true, you know, like, Maybe in some ways I have reduced my own carbon footprint right now because of social distancing and barely being able to get out of home. But when I went back home last month, you know, sort of equipped with all this knowledge that I had gained around the podcast by with, you know, conversations with Julia about trying to be more sustainable, etc. So much of how sustainable you are also is impacted by where you are. And I'm sure Julia agrees because like, again, we were talking about Germany and how she now has the opportunity to do a little bit more in some ways. 
Yeah, definitely. Like for me now, um, for example, I came back home a few days ago and I started sewing my own clothes again, which um, I really enjoyed and missed while I was in England. I couldn't do it there. Also, my mother and I are planning to do some gardening today. So we have our own food that we grow. In a few months, we are a pretty well self-sustained household again, which is really nice. It is really nice. And for me, to even imagine doing it back home in Mumbai, which again is one of the largest cities in the world. We have a population that's around 22 million. Finding something organic can be such a huge task because of the government frameworks around like no clarity around what exactly is organic, how can you find it, no strict rules if like, you know, if you are misled. At the same time, like, because of like India's own, you know, green revolution years ago, pesticide usage is high in a lot of parts of India. When Julia talks about making her own clothes now, when I came to the UK, that's when I first heard about charity shops and secondhand stores and thrift stores because back home we do not have anything like that. And as soon as I heard about it, you know, like I went all out. I almost shop nothing from like high fashion brands now, say Primark or Zara or um, H&M. But when I go back home, again, this option becomes really difficult because I can't make my own clothes. And at the same time, there are no thrift stores. To buy sustainable fashion in India, because it's such a niche market still, it's extremely expensive. And at the same time, you don't get the, you know, the quality or the design that you would want to. So I'm, I wouldn't say stuck, but it becomes a lot more tempting to buy fast fashion then and also way more convenient. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like um, back at home, I live in a village. So even for me, it's very difficult. Like if I wanted to go to a thrift or secondhand store, I think in a city that's next to my village, there's maybe like one thrift store or maybe two. But it's very difficult, like when, you, when you're looking for something specific, you don't have those many options. Um, normally, when I was younger, we always went to a city that's like 60 kilometers away from my place to go shopping there. And it was basically like one Saturday, just my mother, my sisters and I. And we spent the whole day just shopping and you just go from one store to the other. But even then, I didn't think about secondhand store shopping. Uh, I think the first time I really did it was last year and that was really when I first tried to explore the thrift store options in that city and they were pretty good. It's just like sometimes you have to do a little bit of research but then you find things but other times you just don't have the options and I mean like um, I'm really privileged because I live in a country that has options where you can have alternatives but when you're living somewhere around the world where you just don't have the options to buy anything than from the big brands, you're pretty limited in what you can do even if you don't want to buy clothes that you know are really damaging like for people, for the environment and the planet as a whole. And this logic, you know, of where you live playing an important role in what choices you make applies to a lot of other things like food as well. Yeah, definitely. And for me, one of the like one of the things that I can think of is milk and dairy, because again, like back home, milk is such an important part of our diet. Uh, I am from a vegetarian household, so I've never really eaten meat or fish or chicken in my life. So that wasn't 
a difficult transition to come here and make you know but at the same time milk has played such an important role in our diet uh, it's often like marketed as like super nutritious uh, i think julia spoke about it you know in the last episode as well where you know julia you were talking about how um, back in germany as well i think milk is marketed as like like how super nutritious yeah, for children yeah we also have like like advertisement slogans it's not just like that i advertise it for children but for adults as well and i mean i was drinking milk till pff, roughly five five and a half years ago i never really thought like oh gosh that's something like you shouldn't drink until i did some research into it and i mean i ate meat i ate dairy products and eggs until i kind of really started thinking about it and had to do some research for a school project that's how i became vegetarian and then later on vegan and not everybody has the options you know again like say for example if i were to quit milk completely it's much easier here in england because as soon as you enter the supermarket you have like oat milk almond milk soy milk cashew milk rice milk like hemp Drink. milk it's a drink oh sorry <laughs> sorry like we forget out <laughs> it's called drink yeah dairy alternatives uh and you know like i we did an episode as well right julia on like just trying all these and sort of like figuring out yeah oat milk is my favorite yeah mine as well mm-hmm. and when i now go back home you know like even though we don't have any of these in the supermarket we only have almond milk which is very very expensive like see a liter could cost you anywhere between 4 to 5 pounds at least just approximately that that's massive that's really massive and I think like it's really important that you like have the options but also the demand like for example in Germany we now have um especially oat drink that's really really cheap and like below 1 pound even which is um I think I didn't see that in England but here in Germany like the market is so huge and it's it's still growing um the last few years have been amazing for dairy alternatives meat alternatives and um you really see that an awareness is coming up here and in other parts of the world as well but i think like for a lot of people who are still struggling with this is um when you don't really know which ones like the one for you so at the beginning i was also like figuring out what i like and sometimes you have like something that you just like think is horrible or you don't like at all and it it pushes you back a little bit and there's a lot of misinformation as well that can like just put stones into your way completely agree with that you know and now say if i were to move back to india it wouldn't be a perfect version but i would at least be able to make my oat milk at home because i know like you said that is what i like and that's what i'm like comfortable with and when i tried to make it the last time it wasn't perfect but it was at least a start but for you to get onto that journey and reach the point where you are willing to spend time to make your own milk for that you need you need the demand you need your supermarkets to have these options for you to try experiment fail try again and you need the yeah, right definitely. kind of information and i i have at least noticed the surge with like forks over knives and like other instagram handles like plant based news which are wonderful to follow and at the same time are finally like giving out streamlined information it it has become easier but i can imagine 5 years ago when you started it it must be a muddle because 5 years ago i wasn't even trying so 
Um, I think like um, in Germany we had it kind of like wave-like when it popped up, like first vegetarianism and veganism. And I always managed to be a little bit ahead of the wave before like it kind of became mainstream. So when I started it was like you didn't have that many options, but after like a year later maybe, suddenly all those things came popping up and you were like, oh wow, what is happening? I'm able to like make them on my own, some of them at least. And that's also like the knowledge that you need to have that like if you can't find something at a supermarket or you don't want to buy it at a supermarket even, how can you make them on your own, you know? Because you, you have no sort of sample in your head on what you want it to be like. But at the same time, I'm also curious. Both of us have traveled quite a lot, you know. Uh, and we do like traveling, which probably is one of the major reasons both of us came to England to study as well. But how was, how was South America like? Because I think you were traveling for around six months, also studying at the same time, roughly. Was it easy to stay vegan or stay sustainable? Um, I mean, <laughs> I have to be honest, when I, like, I studied in Santiago de Chile, the, the capital of Chile, and um, then I found a vegan <laughs> kind of hub in Santiago, and um, they, for example, they had, like, a vegan festival once a month in an old cinema, and they had, like, everything from, like, oh gosh, they had amazing vegan layer cake and vegan sushi, empanadas. And it was just, like, this one festival and they had so many other options. So food-wise, it was not a problem for me to stay vegan. Sustainability-wise, that was a little bit of a tricky one because at that point in Chile and in a lot of other South American countries that I visited afterwards, for example, in supermarkets, a lot of things are in plastic, and, um, but it doesn't end there. So you go to the cashier and normally there's one person standing, like kind of when you went and you're done and you walk through. And if you're not fast enough, they pack all of your things in plastic bags and not just like they use one bag for, let's say, five things. No, everything gets a single plastic bag. So I saw people with a shopping cart and they had like 30 to 40 single plastic bags I always was like, hey, no quiero bolsa, which basically means I don't want a bag. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, there was a little bit of a struggle. You had to be very fast with that one. But I would say my biggest struggle, and at that point when I was in South America, I didn't realize like how bad what I was doing was. Um, it only really got to me later when I was back home was that I had around 20 to 25 flights. And how did you feel about like taking all these flights, especially considering you were on a journey climate-wise as well? Yeah, I have to say at that point in my life, I I did have it in the back of my head that like I try to be like sustainable and climate-friendly, let's say it like that. But on my priority list, traveling and seeing as much of South America as I could was just higher than doing something good for the environment. Um, so like I said, while I was doing it, I wasn't really aware how bad it actually was or should have tried to find an alternative. And I have to say in South America, you have so many great bus lines, for example, which is amazing. And the buses were very good as well. So yeah, it only really got to me 
maybe a year later when I was back at home and like really started trying to figure out what I could do to um, be more aware of the environment, what I could do. And then all those planes I took kind of popped back into my head. And I was like, oh, well, actually, that was not a pretty good thing to do, I would say. So, yeah, so I now try to avoid planes as much as possible. But yeah, a few days ago, I had to take a plane again. It's an ongoing struggle, I would say. And at, uh, at that point in my life, I, I try to avoid them as much as possible. But sometimes you, you just can't. What about you? I mean, you have to go back to India. And I think a few weeks ago, we tried to figure out how to get to India without taking a flight from Europe. And it was basically a nightmare. It was. And at this point, I, I don't even think it's a viable option, just considering how far it is. And I think I have made my peace with the fact that there are things that you can do and there are things that you can't do. And uh, yeah, you know, like, like I said, I went back home briefly, uh, you know, last month. And uh, I don't know how to explain it, but there was this sense of transition so we're here, like, you know, we, Julia and I are starting here in Newcastle, which is a small city. Um, you can walk almost anywhere. W would you agree? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, like when you just said small city, <laughs> I mean, it's, I think around 300,000 300, people living there. For you, it's small. For me, like my village has less than 2,000 people. So I'm like, yeah, well, for me, <laughs> it's pretty big. But yeah, you can basically it's walk true. from one it's end true. to the like, other, I like, think. Bombay has 22 million people. So this is just like, I love this. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the fact that you can walk anywhere means that you're reducing your carbon footprint significantly, transport-wise at least. And uh, back home, when I had to take a train to go somewhere, uh, Bombay has an efficient train system. It's not like the most beautiful, but it's extremely functional. But still, my parents are still like, but why, why don't you just take a cab? And I'm like, no, you know, I've just reached a point where it feels very wrong to take a cab to go, say, half an hour, 45 minutes away. And I, I do get their logic and their point, especially considering cabs back home are really cheap. So if I were to take a journey that would be... Uh, not kilometers, but say like a half an hour ride away, it wouldn't cost me more than three pounds or so. So it, it's just very tempting and that's the way they've grown up, you know, like, so they don't, they don't really understand the impact of it. But at the same time, you know, like when I do have to go to the station, I always cab it up. And if I were to walk, it would take like 15 minutes max. And I tried consciously doing that, but I realized what the difference was. Design. Bombay has such bad infrastructural design. You, you don't have a singular footpath that can take you to the station or uh, like, a, like connecting footpaths. Your footpaths are like, like full of like shops, carts. And so it, it basically becomes like an obstacle race, you know, trying to get to the station where you constantly, it's not a pleasant journey as, at all, you know, to even make that 15 minute walk. And when you're walking, it just feels more convenient to take a cab and also quicker because that 15 minute journey could go to 18, 20, 22 minutes, just depending on like how much is in your way. So I think yeah, like governments and designers also play such an important role in how we experience a city, you know. Say you were to go to South America and you said that like they had like a really good bus connectivity. And if you were to go again now, I'm guessing you would take the buses. I mean, I, I did take loads of buses while I was there as well. Um, but yeah, if I if I could go again, and I mean, I plan to go again, 
I would try to do most with buses um, because you definitely have to op the options to do most of it with buses. It's definitely possible to use the buses and they're really nice. Um, and you actually see a little bit more of the, of the place than if you're just like flying over everything, you know? That's true. And I find that very interesting, even like between England and uh, India. Like we don't have like a really great bus system, but we have really good train connectivity. So if I were to travel to any part of India, India is huge. So it is possible for me to take a train, although again, flights are cheaper. So it becomes a very tempting option. It's just that England doesn't have the best train system in the world, you know. Sometimes your trains are more expensive than, say, a flight. If you yeah. were to take a Ryanair. So again, like, how do you make that sort of balance when you're a student and on a budget or whatever? If I were to go to London, yes, I would take, like, you know, like a train because it's only three or four hours away. But if, again, say, from England, I had to go to some part of Europe, say, Croatia or something, you know, like it's not that expensive to take a flight. And if I were, yeah. I'm guessing to take a train, it would it would just take forever. I would have to make multiple changes. So it's it's really tempting. And I, I do feel guilty about like, you know, doing that. But it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to find that balance between going that extra mile when you can, even if it's a little yeah, bit inconvenient. Okay. But at the same time, this is like, my appeal to like all the governments and infrastructure design bodies in the world to make cities more accessible, to make like transport more like convenient, easier. Because if it's convenient, if they like, if it's there, people will follow and people will go through. Yeah, definitely. I think like the thing is, it needs to be available, easily accessible. Um, like with everything that we talked about, like food, for example, transport, but also education. Like if you if you don't know the options or even know what is better for you and for the environment, like how will you how will you change anything or how will you do something better than you're doing it at the moment? A lot of people are struggling. Um, Ayush and I, I think we're also struggling. I mean, we are on the right track. At least I do hope so. There is always way for improvement. What do you say? There is, and I completely agree with the education bit, you know, especially because I have siblings now who are 13. And when I talk to them about like my own learnings around the environment and what I feel about veganism, vegetarianism, uh, the clothing that you wear, um, even to my own mom, you know, who has been very rigid in her ways, loves shopping, etc. She is more conscious, you know, just providing people with that knowledge can really, really change things for them. Because my sister, who's just 13, said that she wants to go vegan now. And, and she is going to stumble and fall. But the fact she has this knowledge 10 years before I did, that, that yeah, gives her amazing. a major boost, you know, for her to figure her own ways out. And by the time she's like our age or something, she's going to be in a better place than we are environmentally yeah. yeah definitely and i think it's also like important to be be a positive role model for others just live your life the best you can and this brings us to the tips for episode six tip number one wherever you decide to travel next research more into the buses and trains you can take as alternatives to planes Tip number two, write down what you're struggling with and analyze what you can change weekly with regards to your climate journey. 
Tip three, whether you have an indoor window, balcony or a garden, grow something, flowers or food, the choice is yours. Thank you so much for listening to episode six of Two Minutes to Midnight. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Minutes to Midnight Podcast for the latest updates on the show.